2 Timothy 4, 1 through 8, and then 16 through 18. In the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing in his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season, correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a number of teachers who say what their itching ears want to hear. They'll turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, and discharge all the duties of your ministry. For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time for my departure is near. I've fought the good fight, I've finished the race, I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but to all who have longed for his appearing. At my first defense, no one came to my support, but everyone deserted me. It may, not be held against, may it not be held against them. The Lord stood at my side and gave me strength, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it, and I was delivered from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and bring me back safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory and uh, forever and ever. Amen. All right. Pastoral's almost done. Um, I think this is a great way to uh, kind of bring together the uh, elements that we've seen in Titus and 1 Timothy and in 2 Timothy. And I don't know, I, you know, uh, started working on a new sermon series, and I think I'm going to do the first thematic sermon series in, like, how long will it have been? Forever, right? Uh, so uh, as uh, I was working on that, I'm like, gosh, i got to get this kind of last one out of the way. And as I remembered from last week, I'm like, hey, it's, I don't know if it's going to be that great. And, wow, I think it's a good one. Uh, it is a good one, at least in part, because it lays out the whole argument for the arc of uh, Titus and First Timothy and Second Timothy very well, and I don't know. You all know that I'm not uh, huge on applicability, but uh, it has a a, a a very direct and applicable kind of vision for what it means to live the Christian life, and it does so in a very clear and a direct fashion. In fact, it lays out three charges for us. Three, you know, I'll even use a, a group of threes. I tried to make them start with the same letter, but it didn't work. <laughs> Preach the word. Be prepared, correct, rebuke, and encourage, which is kind of a fake three, right? Because it's three within a three. But preach the word, be prepared, correct, rebuke, and encourage. So let's dig in on each of those a little bit. In the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead, in view of the appearing of his kingdom, I give you the charge, preach the word. That first charge, preach the word, is not just something that adheres on the elders of this church. It's not just something that adheres on people who were formerly in positions uh, where they're asked to preach. It's, uh, it's, it's a so much broader understanding of what it means for every Christian to occupy and take up and believe in and speak a relationship to the word. And, and you know, Paul is kind of picking up on a theme that we talked about a couple weeks ago. Remember a couple weeks ago, we talked about the idea of the things that you do, you do in the sight, not of the culture or the people around you, but you, the things that you do, you do in the sight of God. And that the way that the Christian ought to think is to think about their own action, their own speech, everything that they do in the sight of and, and, and as seen by 
and for the purposes of advancing the kingdom. And so the uh, presence that matters here, and it's awfully important that when Paul talks about preaching, he starts with this idea of God's direct presence. I want to meditate on that for a little bit. What, what are the things before Paul lays out that charge that we ought to preach that he uh, kind of does in thinking about the presence of God in Jesus Christ? Well, first of all, uh, presence is maybe the ultimate attribute, I guess, of, of divinity, is it not? Not just a presence that's defined by the question of existence, does God exist or not, but the idea of Jesus and God both fully present and able to see in and participating in the character of creation. It gets back to the thing that we've talked about is what? The mystery of Jesus Christ, the mystery of God incarnate in the world, the mystery of God's presence coming to us among not only a specific person, but in the context of a community and in the context of the kingdom. And so the first charge is to preach. That's not just an injunction for Timothy, nor is it something that happens on Sundays just behind a podium. The Greek word here, and it is an awesome word, kerygma, kerygma. And the word means something, well, I don't know, there was this, anybody, there's a bunch of us in the room that are old enough to remember either, I don't know, like for me when I was a kid, you'd be up maybe late at night and there'd be an emergency broadcast system announcement. I was always freaked out that it was a first strike because that was just the way I was as a kid. But there was a certain kind of, or like when you thought about the fire drill going off in class, right? Think about official announcements, things that come from some formally authorized sources. Well, since they didn't have TV or, I don't know, fire drills in the old days, there was this Greek, in the Greek and Roman world, there was this office, there was a person who was called the Carex. And the Carex was a person who the local leader would say, hey, you know, we got some news to get out. Go out to the town square and yell out to everybody the thing that they need to know. That was the Carex. It was a person who was a heralder or a proclaimer. So think about this as like the pre-modern version of the emergency broadcast system. Kerygma is not just about the idea of, I don't know, informing people about something. It was also a kind of direct presence in the public square of a person who served as a representative of the governing authorities. The point of kerygma is that it's not just about transmitting information. The thing that gave the Carex its power is that the Carex was a person who stood out in the public square and who occupied that place in the public square and who crucially, they're like the town crier who could, you could hear their voice, you could hear the news coming directly from them. And so, I don't know, when you walked out into the public square and you were hanging out and, I don't know, you were buying fava beans or whatever it is that they bought, all of a sudden you'd hear this voice kind of pop up and you'd perk up just like we would when we heard the emergency broadcast system or when you heard a fire drill because it was the voice of the person who was telling you something that came from a specific authority they stood in for and they embodied that authority. And I don't know, we all have the experience of screening out advertising all the time. How much of our life is about not paying attention to things? And the Carex was, uh, I'm sure they were the same way. Everybody had to kind of screen out conversation, et cetera. But the, the Carex was the person who you would tune into and their very presence announced the possibility of something new and important that you had to listen to. Now that's the other thing. And the reason why I kind of want to dig on, on that di idea of the Carex a little bit. The Carex of course, had a role to play. But the other kind of cultural idea behind the Carex is that when the Carex said something, you had to listen, right? That kerygma does not just capture the idea that there's someone who is spouting out the information. It also captures the idea that the people who are in the audience are supposed to hear to it and respond to it. And as the folks in the early church thought about 
the charics, and then this idea of kerygma, of preaching, they thought about it as something like this. The kerygma obliges you to proclaim what is true. And it obliges you to respond to it, to hear it, to move it in it, to be transformed by it, to encounter in it something that is bigger than the messenger. And that there was an obligation for the community collectively and individually to hear and respond to the good news that is Jesus Christ. And that's a fancy way of saying that just because it says, quote, preach here, that doesn't get all of you all off the hook. Preach here means that you are to be a bearer of and a respondent to the word of Jesus Christ. That it has a quality and a characteristic that is different from other kinds of words, other kinds of ideas, and other kinds of things, and that you ought to hear it and internalize it and be transformed by it, and as a result, you become a bearer of it yourself. And that your job is to not only uh, be moved by it, but to proclaim it itself. That second charge flows directly from the first. Be prepared in season and out of season. The word there for be prepared is ephistemi, and it literally means to stand on or be present. It's a super interesting word because, I don't know, like if Trey was moving and he said, oh, you know, a bunch of folks in the church were on hand for me there uh, to help move, and I really appreciate it. They were there for me. That's one example of what ephistemi meant. It meant to stand with or alongside someone, but it also meant like to hold a position or a fortification. So it was also like either defense or attack. And the idea of ephistemi there being prepared was the idea that you served as a resource regardless of the condition, regardless of what it is that the community needed. And then like this incredibly beautiful piece of of Greek, uh, there's this, that when we are to be prepared, we are to be prepared what? In season and out of season. And the, I don't know, it's just stunningly beautiful. Kairos, Kairos, Kairos. That we are to be ready to stand regardless of what the world or the signals around us look like, whether it seems like it's a time where there is an opportunity to advance the kingdom, or it seems like those are ends that are far from it, if it seems like the kingdom is under threat, or if it's advancing, whatever the condition is, that kerygma is to be born within us so that we can stand for and be ready for and be in place for the needs of the kingdom. You have an obligation to preach the word and to say the truth that is Jesus Christ. You have an obligation to have it shape you and to make you. You have an obligation in that shaping and making to be prepared for and to be at hand for and to be ready for and to be in defense of and to be uh, for the advance of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And what are the means of doing it? Third charge. Correct, rebuke, and encourage. Now, I think I've probably talked about each one of those words at least twice. I'm not going to do it again. I don't want to bore the business out of you. But I want you to remember the kind of thrust of it. As we think about the pastoral letters traditionally, we thought about them as a series of instructions for what morally qualified someone for leadership, or we've thought about them as a series of rules about what you have to do or can't do. We thought about rebuking as kind of fighting with or chastising someone. We thought about uh, instruction as being kind of telling someone what to do. And then encouragement kind of seems like the outlier because how can you both tell someone what to do, wag your finger at them, and encourage them? But the way that the letter actually frames these things put lumps them all together in one idea, doesn't it? The idea is that we are to be open to and point people towards the mystery of Jesus Christ, that it is not us who corrects or rebukes, but we invite people into the possibility of a direct and personal encounter with Jesus Christ. And that's the role of preaching, to preach and be prepared to preach, to bear, be a bearer of the kerygma, I guess, easy to proclaim and to 
be prepared to proclaim so that you can correct and rebuke and encourage with great patience and careful instruction to invite other people to what? Not necessarily even to change the way that they think about the world, not necessarily to outmaneuver or out-argue them, not to do anything other than what? To invite them to encounter the beauty and the mystery of Jesus Christ and to be thankful for it. That's it. That's the entirety of the kerygma. To use your words and to use your proclamation to point people towards the character of and the person of Jesus Christ. And in doing so, what? In doing so, the goal is this one continuous act of correcting and rebuking and encouraging. And Paul puts those words together because he sees them as a continuous act that does what? Its goal is not necessarily just to rebuke or to instruct, but is to create encounter with the person of Jesus. And through that, I don't know, that's the thing about kerygma, isn't it? Like, kerygma is not just about writing down the right stuff about God. Kerygma is about the embodiment of the word in you. It's an extension of the idea of the incarnation, that as God is incarnate in Jesus Christ, so too, by the word Christ, we are made open to an encounter that in our lives and in our speech and everything that we do proclaims the character of Jesus. It's the most beautiful thing about the character of the kerygma. The kerygma is not something that you tell someone about. It's not something that you set someone straight on. The point of the proclamation, my friends, is not even to prove it. It is simply to say, with the same kind of direct frankness of that emergency broadcast system announcement, that there is a reality that is more powerful than anything we can ultimately fully understand or represent. It is to point towards a beauty that is so overwhelming and so incomprehensible and yet ultimately and fully more real than reality itself. It is the ultimate and the foundational reality. We do not instruct or inform people about the character of this mystery. We can simply point them towards it, invite them to it, and shut our mouths. Isn't that the beautiful paradox? Because it's not about us or our words. It's about our words and our life and our action directing towards and proclaiming the gospel and the character of Jesus Christ. This is not just an injunction to Timothy. It's an injunction to every person who seeks to serve the kingdom, to let the word abide in them and move through them and transform them that so they can, pl- that they can proclaim and speech and action, indeed a beauty that is so much bigger than and so much more incomprehensible than and so much real than the world that is around us. And why do we do it? Why do we become that kind of portal for the proclamation? Well, because... Without a time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine to suit their own desires. They will gather around them from a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn away the, uh, from the truth and turn aside to miss. Now, here's the funny thing. This is, there's a very, very, very specific kind of way of thinking about truth that was inherent to this culture that's a little bit different than ours. And it really starts to pop if you think about the carrots, which is what I love about this. In our culture, for example, we have a, a distinction between, I don't know, facts and spin, right? You know, everybody's kind of familiar with facts and spin, or uh, I hate to say this one out loud, but it's the clearest one I can say it, and uh, rhetoric and reality, some people say it. Yeah, hate that one. But, you know, in, in, in the people in that era, the, the era that we're talking about, they, of course, wouldn't have thought something as silly as rhetoric and reality are indistinct. They would have thought that the word was intimately woven into the character of reality, but whatever, putting that aside... If you lived in the ancient Near or Middle East, the relevant distinction for you would not have been between fact and spin or rhetoric and reality, but between, ready? Kerygma and mythos. Kerygma and mythos. 
Mythos, that's why Paul says at the end there, people will turn to myths because their ears are itching. What is a myth there? A myth is a story that you receive that comes to you, that serves as conventional wisdom, that maybe puts the world together for you a little bit, but the crucial character of the myth, and this is the thing, is that the myth is not directly present. It's about something that might have happened a long time ago or far off. It's about a story that everybody kind of agreed on, maybe they didn't believe in, but it taught them some message or some meaningful thing. And against that idea of myth was kerygma, which was the real and present and sharp and true word cutting through the things that people believed and the way that they thought about the world. And that's the distinction I think that is being made here is that what he's not, he's not just talking about thinking about, I don't know, the gods on Mount Olympus or something. He's talking about this idea that we have two ways of hearing things in the world. One is a way that is based on whatever our culture tells us to accept, whatever it is that makes us feel comfortable and self-satisfied about our way of life and about our ways of living and about the choices that we make in the world. And then there's this other way of thinking. It's not about the myths that we inherit. It's not about the things that we were told to believe. It's not about the conventional wisdom. Is it about the direct and clear and true and incisive word of your Savior reaching your ear directly and cutting through all that and changing and transforming it? That's the difference that he's getting at here. That the proclamation of Christ is fundamentally different from the proclamation that your ears itch to hear that affirms what you're doing and who you are and where you think about the world uh, where you think about the world he's saying that with the very same authority of the carex jumping out in the public square and declaring something that each christian ought to take up the word of god independent of what it is that shapes them or drives them or what they want to say or what they want to hear and simply proclaim it and it's not proclaimed on the basis of their own excellence it's not proclaimed on the on the basis of their own articulateness or persuasiveness but instead it is true and intrinsically beautiful in and of itself and it gains that beauty in the fact of its proclamation. The Greek word there for itch is natho, right? Don't we want to, it means like something that you can't not help but respond to. You've got an itch, you've got to scratch it. You have ways of thinking about the world. You want to hear stories that confirm them. And instead, the gospel is supposed to be the alternative to that. But here's the important thing. Here's the important thing. We talked in Sunday school class today a little bit about the difference uh, between what? What oral stories and written, written culture. And yeah, we had an awesome conversation around it, about Job. And it, it, it is something that is directly written into the idea of kerygma. Because the idea of kerygma, the idea of the proclaimer is, it's not just what the proclaimer proclaims, it's how the proclaimer proclaims it that matters. The proclaimer is there directly within earshot. The words of the proclaimer ring out in the public sphere, the that the, they hit you directly in the ears and they move you. They are uh, something that is about not just the content of the gospel, but about making the gospel real in the context of a relationship where you interact with folks, where you challenge them, where you challenge their ways of understanding the world, their conventional wisdom and their ways of understanding themselves. You invite them into a conversation. And I don't know, modern evangelicals call it something like a personal relationship, but that's not quite right. It's a transpersonal relationship. It's that in that relationship and in bearing that kerygma, you point someone towards the real presence of Jesus Christ. And it is that presence that transforms them instead of just convincing them about the character of the fact. And if all that's too abstract, I imagine you have a similar kind of experience to me where sometime in a road, uh, road trip somewhere in the deep south, especially if you're, well, hopefully only if you're a guy, you walked into a bathroom and you found a chick track sitting on top of a urinal. And you pick up that track and it's not, I mean, you might not agree with the theology in it, right? Probably not, but 
You know, it's not like the people who put the track down are bad-hearted or trying to do something evil. But isn't there something that rubs you a little wrong about it? Isn't there something that feels about it like it doesn't really take into account the person who's going to pick it up and what that's going to do to them and whether or not, and it may invite them towards something bigger. I don't know the mysterious ways through which the, the, the spirit works, but I've always had the sense that something you find sitting on a urinal in a bathroom that tells you that if you don't follow the Romans road that you're doomed to burn is not quite the way that the gospel might best be proclaimed. But as I thought about it more, it's not the theology that matters to me. As I thought about it more, I think the thing is, is that what matters is that it is presented outside the context of the kerygma of the direct proclamation of the word of Jesus Christ in a relationship where the presence of God is made real to someone. Where you become the portal and the person who by their proclamation invites them into and points them towards the mystery that is Jesus Christ. And as we think about what it means to preach and as we think about what it means for us to proclaim, I want you to think in very direct and concrete terms that it's not just about the content that you convey, but about the fact that you become a person who models what it means to speak to someone as Jesus Christ speaks to us and that our way of thinking about what it means to reach people ought to mirror the concept of the incarnation, that if God is in you and transforms you and empowers you with a word, that your obligation to bear that word can transform the world. And it's not the certainty of or the rigor of the information that matters, but rather the idea that in your proclamation you become to another person the face of Christ and that we believe that it is Christ who is beautiful and persuasive and who changes hearts. And we believe that that can cut through the character of modern myth in exactly the same way that it cut through the character of classical myth because it can change and transform and make each one of us in his own image and to be his own children. Verse five, because you keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministry, proclaiming that good news and living that good news is the duty of every Christian's ministry. It is the means through which Jesus becomes apparent to the world. It is the means through which we challenge all our own and other people's self-justifying and self-satisfied myths to demonstrate that God has become incarnate in the world and God has become incarnate in us and invites every one of us to come to the table and eat. Here's the thing. Paul kind of closes on this note about sacrifice. To proclaim that kerygma requires sacrifice. It requires that we are overtaken by the proclamation, that the proclamation moves through us and that it reaches out into the world and transforms us and transforms others. And because they hear the sound of the word and they hear the word as it is made apparent to them, they are changed. And to do so is to lay yourself up as a sacrifice. Remember that stuff last week about the uh, drink sacrifice that communion prefigured in the same way Paul says just like they would have poured out a drink sacrifice in order to make themselves right with God and just like the Christian community borrowed that idea and then made it holy by saying that we drink together in order to make ourselves right with God and with man each person needs to see the return of or the reverse of that which is that for us to be people who are bearers of God's word for us to truly proclaim the kerygma, we too have to become sacrifices in and of ourselves. Paul says it, six and seven, I am already being poured out like a drink offering and the time for my departure is near. I've fought the good fight and finished the race and I have kept the faith. 
And that is the idea that the very thing that is manifest in communion, the very thing that is manifest in the meal, the sacrifice that pours out a drink for the sake of the kingdom is not just something that we take internally, but it is something that after we take internally transforms us and makes us different. Paul has been poured out as we too ought to be poured out in word and in speech and in character so that the person of Christ is made apparent to the world. And that means that the sacrifice does not end at sacrifice, but instead it culminates in the victory because the victory of our own speech when we sacrifice ourselves and make the world open to an encounter with Christ, be it we, we demonstrate and we lift up the beauty of a Savior who is the Word, who is the way, who is the truth, and who is the life. And we know that He will in the end make all things new and all things beautiful and all things good. That's it. That's why Paul says, Now there is in store for me a crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but to all who have longed for his appearing. Honestly, sometimes I feel like Paul's a little bit of a drama queen. That's just me. People have different approaches to style, and I, you know, I don't doubt the character of the inspired word, but he talks about all the people he's been abandoned by. But here's the crucial thing. The conclusion of the letter, verses 16 through 18. At my defense, no one came to my support, but everyone deserted me. May it not be held against them. The Lord stood at my side and gave me strength that, so that through the, that me, the message might be fully proclaimed and all Gentiles might hear it. And I was delivered from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every attack and bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And that's the point, isn't it? That's it. When we speak, when we proclaim, when we let the kerygma overtake us and overflow from us and we do it with a boldness, when we let the truth overtake us so that we see ourselves as portals of and indicators to and pointers towards the beauty of Jesus Christ when the work is not on us, but instead simply that we transmit the gift that has been given to us, that we open ourselves to the world and we speak it to others and we engage with them. And that when it is validated, not by the power or the persuasiveness of our own language, but by the character of a savior who cannot lie and a savior who cannot fail and a savior who will never give up on his own people. And as a result, though we sacrifice ourselves in speaking the word, there is a victory that is so much more beautiful and infinitely powerful because when we are made into bearers of his image and into his light and a means of life for the world that desperately needs us so that Christ, we cannot help but proclaim his character. We cannot help but proclaim who he is. We are made different as is the world and his word will not come back empty. So let that proclamation shape you and make you into something new because you were purchased with a price and you were promised that if you declare his name and you seek his kingdom, that all things will be made new. Amen. The pastorals! <laughs>